Hey guys, it's Larry from the Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm here with Derek and we are here for our fourth episode of season two. Today, we are going to talk the fall. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve eating of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and falling. And and, and there's the idea that if, if that never would have happened, then none of us would ever have been born. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know how accurate that really is. But the interesting thing about this is that this really is that important. I mean, I would say the fall is probably about on level with like, it's probably secondary to Jesus. Yeah. Dying. And I mean, I guess anything with Jesus, like Jesus' birth and Jesus' dying, maybe the giving of the law, maybe. I would, I mean, in that order, I'm putting Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. And then his birth. His birth, the fall. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking the fall. But I'm saying like the only other thing that you could even compare as far as importance is the giving of the law to Moses and maybe like the second coming yeah i mean that, yeah, like those are the only things even in contention if we're going to rank importance of biblical events like that is the top that's the top five and the first two are for sure yeah i mean no question and number three almost definitely is this i, I mean creation i think would be in the discussion for those top five too but i don't think this is i think this is more important than creation because I mean, yeah, without creation, nothing exists, but without creation, it's kind of like, meh, you know? Yeah. I mean, what does it matter? (laughs) So, yeah. So, so it brings us to Genesis chapter three, verse one, right? So we read in that verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And, and, and that's kind of where our interesting discussion is starting, right? Yeah. So you know, up to this point, we it's kind of been like a three-player game, right? You know, it was player one, God, with the creation of the universe and speaking it into existence. Uh, player two, Adam, uh, and God telling Adam, okay, go out and name every beast of the field, you know, do this, do that. Uh, keep it, prepare the garden, you know, all those things. Uh, player three, Eve, because Adam after he names every beast of the field and looks through them, he has no one to help him. So God's like, boom, I'm going to give you a help meet. And he creates Eve. So after this point, it's been a three player game in this saga, right? Well, Genesis three introduces another character to the game, right? Uh, The serpent. So the English translation of the Bible says the serpent was more crafty than anything God had made. Uh, So crafty in this translation uh, comes from Aram, uh, which is, you know, properly to be or make, uh, bear, but used only in the derived sense through the idea perhaps of smoothness to be cunning, you know, Usually cunning in a bad way, not, and usually if you're going to say the word cunning, I think you would agree, Larry. Cunning is, cunning is never, uh, is never used in a good way. Positive in that sense, you know? Um, One interesting thing too, is that it it actually says beasts of the field. 
like I, I didn't think about this and I I did take a look at some of the stuff that you have that we have that we're gonna talk about. Um it's interesting to me that it says beast of the field because technically speaking, wouldn't beast of the field not include like the fish and the sea creatures and like birds? I mean, I I guess on a technicality, but I mean on a technicality. Well, I mean, let's be real here. We're talking about Genesis, like this stuff, like when this was written, it was specific on purpose. So like, I, and, and not that we'll ever know, I don't think there's any way to really find out. Right. But I wonder if there's a reason that it says beasts of the field and not just beasts or creation. Like it doesn't say more cunning than any other creation that the Lord had God had made or any other living creature. The Lord had God had made, you know, it says specifically beasts of the field, not beast of the air or beast of the sea, because in the creation account, the beasts of the sea, the 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 beasts of the air, and the beasts of the field were created on different days. Yeah, I, and you know, luckily, I'm I'm going to get into that just a little bit. I'm not going to like go into because there's really not a deep philosophical thing. Yeah, I don't think there's an answer. I mean, whatever I, it is, I, I'm pretty sure it's lost time. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing to talk about that i never noticed until literally when i read it to kind of get this going i was like wait it said beast of the field why why didn't and then you went you know he introduced another main character and he's craftier than anything god had made and i was like didn't really say god had made it said beast of the field yeah i mean it was just like well and and that's kind of why i said anything god made because it's really just a general thing like it's yeah it, it could be it also could there could be some differentiation in god's eyes between you know mammals and amphibians and stuff like that and birds and sea creatures like there could actually be some sort of like purposeful distinction between those things yeah i mean when you're looking at cunning and crafty like why is it important that this creature is crap more crafty than any other Thing that he's made but i don't know why i'm saying any other because the word other is not even in the original text in fact <laughs> this version in my opinion we use the esv a lot but this esv version in my opinion gets this kind of wrong uh because the king james version and most many other versions do not even include the word other uh they just say any beast of the field um so that being said, if you're just saying any beast of the field, I don't think it's necessarily about just the beast of the field. I think that uh, it's more about just the general overview of creation, right? Um, as far as what's going on on land. Um, but the other thing is, why is Eve so comfortable talking to a snake? right like this isn't narnia yo yeah i mean because uh, like when i'm thinking about this like if i see a talking snake i'm going the other direction <laughs> and right. and like is this some wild thornberry stuff going on like <laughs> it was this an actual like did did serpents have voice boxes or a generational divide you say wild thornberry i say narnia 
Well, I grew up in like the. I know, I know. Yeah, no, it just it just made me laugh. Like same idea. Yeah, I mean, same idea though. But why is she so comfortable with this? And so I did. It didn't take me much digging because I already knew this, but I did some <laughs> digging back into some uh, ancient Old Testament uh, critical analysis books. So it's important to note that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, like Egypt, the Canaanite Valley, even in early Judaism, serpents were typically symbols of wisdom. They're typically used to represent, you know, because of how they can shed their skin, it, it, it implies immortality, um, all, those, all those things going on, right? Okay, wait, it implies immortality. That's really crazy because, like, the whole purpose of the snake is to get them to eat of the fruit that they die from. And they're being talked to by a creature that represents cunning and immortality. That's very convenient symbology. Convenient symbology. And, again, that's, that's really where we're headed with that. So, I mean... So what's up with this serpent? Well, quick, before we get into the really cool thing, though, I had something that I read when I was studying this beforehand. I didn't want to throw it in here because it's so hilarious that I just kind of wanted to surprise you with it. Okay, so I was looking up, like, what's up with some of this stuff, right? Kind of while you were doing it. And I found a site that there's actually groups of Christians that hold the belief that the animals could talk in the garden. Like, obviously not as like a hard theological point, but I found articles that were like things you wouldn't be, you would be shocked to know about the Garden of Eden. They're like, all the animals could talk because Eve didn't think it was weird that the snake could. So all the animals could talk. I'll say things that are not correct for a thousand knots. <laughs> no, it was just, I thought it was hilarious because I was just like, guys, animals don't, they don't have like they don't have the mouth structure and the vocal cords and the the brains to talk like the, it's it animals don't not talk because of some weird restriction from god they don't talk because they literally can't your dog is incapable of speaking human words physically yes i mean it, like that is just so far off base like yeah, and we're just so- like the animals could have all spoken. And I'm like, that is, that is a, like, I am the king of ridiculous left field, crazy theories of everything. And at no point have I ever gone, you know, I think all the animals could have spoken in the garden. No, like, (laughs) like that little pause that I had was mostly about me just like trying to process like there are people actually out there that believe that. So, I mean, that's just so wild to me. But, I mean... So what is up with the serpent, actually, Derek? Yeah, so most hold that... I mean, who do you think the serpent is? Like, most people, what do they say? Lucifer! By the way, listen to our Lucifer episode. It's a good one. Yeah, one of my favorites. Uh, But the serpent translation is actually from the word Nahash. Um, which means properly to hiss or whisper a magic spell, uh, generally to prognosticate, uh, certainly 
uh, divine, you know, enchanter, all those words get along with it. Um, it's also been used throughout the Bible to represent, you know, enchantment and experience and uh, diligently observe. So you got all this magic stuff going on, enchantment stuff going on, di- divining, uh, diviners, all those things going on. But again, this typically refers to just to break it down and make it simple refers to like how soothsayers and uh, diviners and um, people like that, witches, as we would probably call them today, um, whisper when they are enchanting and crafting spells. Very, very brief aside, witchcraft, right? So we, we started reading letters that missionaries send my church every week to my Sunday school class. Okay. And we read one and it had um, one of our missionaries in Mexico. They, their assistant pastor called them one day, like not sure what to do because they came to their church doors and there was like a line of salt and these red dolls outside the church. And so the pastor told him like a witch is challenging you and talked him through what to do with it. But the interesting thing um, is that my class was like, what do you mean? Witches aren't real. There's no such thing as witchcraft. Like my 10 and 11 year old kids. And I had to be like, whoa, wait, stop. Witchcraft is real guys. Like not all of it. Like, I mean, the fantasy broom riding thing, like a lot of that stuff is myth, but like there is actual myth witchcraft, you know, like, and just to get to the end of the story real quick, cause it's really cool. He ended up following the pastor's instructions and, and going and facing this witch the witch got saved, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, along with 150 of her followers and people who went to her for like her soothsaying and stuff. As someone who I grew up in church with used to say, this was a very wise elder, boo devil boo. <laughs> like, yeah, like hundred. I mean, like, I, was, I was just like, like 150 people got saved. Like, okay, let's do this. That's amazing. So, yeah, I, I, but yeah, I, I think I think that's interesting that this podcast over. Yeah, go home. It's weird that in our modern world we're so resistant to that existing. Yeah, but again, like this word "serpent" here is literally referring to that. So, yeah. if the serpent is generally regarded as Lucifer, doesn't that mean that this serpent is at least of angelic origin? Uh, by, I mean, if you're doing like zone of like proximity yeah. here, uh, yeah, and it, I, I guess the the traditional view of this that I've always been told is that like the devil inhabited a serpent somehow, like almost possessed it. But I mean, but. I've- that never happens anywhere else in the Bible and there's no explanation for why or how it happened that one time. And again, it never happens again. Yeah. So again, like that brings up the point. Why is Eve so comfortable talking to this thing? Because this just keeps getting weirder, weirder and weirder, more unnatural and more supernatural as if a talking snake isn't unnatural enough. Right. But we already know that, like we talked about last episode that Adam and Eve at least commune with God, you know, some hold that the garden was a kind of first temple. Uh, 
they're they're used to talking to God directly in his presence, which means the supernatural is not unfamiliar to them at all. And to understand what's happening, I believe that we need to look at Isaiah chapter 6 in verses 1 through 2 specifically. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So, first of all, I could preach all day on the train of his robe, but there's a whole sermon there. But second of all, what does this word you know, have to do with seraphim, right? You know, uh, first of all, like I said, the word serpent goes back to divining and all these supernatural things. That's the root word of it. Well, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, surrounded about seraphim. And the seraphim, as we know, are a class of angels in Jewish and Christian theology, Well, the word seraphim and mythology, don't forget mythology and mythology, because that's a little bit important. That's important later on. Well, it's it's just important (laughs) to recognize that it is mythology. Like we, we act like mythology is a dirty word sometimes in Christianity and in Christian thought. And the reality is, is once you start talking about seraphim and like angels and all this stuff, you're getting into mythology, whether you want to admit it or not. Right. And, but this word comes from the Hebrew root seraph, uh, which means burning. You know, figuratively, uh, it means poisonous, referring to a serpent. Specifically, a seraph or symbolic creature, uh, usually based on the copper color. Um, This is also the word for fiery serpent, which is seraph. this word like is also fiery? <laughs> well, it's it's the same word that's used in numbers when God sends fiery serpents to bite the Israelites. Because uh, oh, also... the, the bites burn. Yeah, it's it's usually it's probably because the bites burn. Yeah. But I was thinking fiery, like it's interesting because like like a fire pit, you know, burning and gnashing of teeth and all of that stuff, like it, that fiery and poisonous serpents are like the same Hebrew root word. Like that's super interesting in light of some of those other things that. Well, I mean, even going to other like Ezekiel, you can find evidence that it's the burning ones. You know, you you can find a lot of evidence to support that. These seraphs had a, fire within them that that made them burn bright you know uh representing obviously the flame of god but it's also the same word used when god tells moses to mount a fiery serpent on his staff or on the pole and anyone looking at it would be healed so Um, not even have been a snake it could have been a seraphim exactly that's that makes more sense about like why they were worshiping it too, because they weren't worshiping a snake. They were worshiping a literal angel. Well, yeah. Or the image. Because of like, I, I forget what book, I think it's in David's time. They, they had a temple, like they had like a place that they were actually worshiping with the, the stick that Moses had. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, interesting aside, guys. Yeah. So these seraphim in the original conception of the idea had serpent-like bodies. Now, I believe this is where the image gets a little bit more clear. Eve's conversation with this serpent was possibly, I, again, we are not here to tell you that this is absolute, go do your own research, was possibly with a fallen seraph in the act of rebellion, which may have been Satan himself. But also could not have been. But also could not have been. Because it doesn't, it no longer, well, it, it was all, it always felt really presumptuous to me that we assumed it was like the leader of all of the demons that had to have been in that one. Like, it's impossible for it to have been a minion. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. And I mean, Revelation refers to the devil as a serpent as well, um, yeah. which I think is where we kind of get that context. But, it could have been Satan. It may not have been, but I do find it interesting because when, you know, and we'll get into this, when Adam and Eve are found out, part of the punishment is the serpent has to eat, has to, you know, dust shall be his mills and he'll crawl on his belly, all those things. Well, if Lucifer's already kicked out, why would he be punished again? Because obviously this seraph is this seraphim could have been completely after the fall. Right? I mean... Yeah. Are, so it, it could have already fallen from heaven, <laughs> been kicked out of heaven. Like, how much worse can you punish it? Yeah, and so his punishment became, okay, well, you're going to... Which basically meant he's going to become mortal. It's He's going to die. Because dust usually refers to mortal mortality. Um, and we often refer that to Sheol, which is death and the second death and things like that. But the change that that does to the serpent, because the serpent's punishment never made sense to me. It was I mean, like God's punishing the entire existence of all the species of snake based on one snake that was possessed by satan when snakes don't have moral decision making power yeah i mean therefore and that's nothing like since adam and eve are so familiar with the supernatural world to me it just makes more sense that this is a supernatural being yeah like if they could sense god the way that they do they hear him coming they you know all this stuff why wouldn't they have also known and seen angels yeah, I mean, it would make sense that Eve would have freely engaged in conversation with the Sarah. And and to go to next week, next week, we're going to talk about the Nephilim. You know, we see a couple chapters later talking about like the the sons of man, the sons of God and the daughters of man and all of this stuff. Right. Like, so, I, I mean, for some reason, these kind of angelic beings seem to be more prevalent and present and visible. Right. It, it, and it should be noted that this imagery with the Nephilim, with the Seraphim, isn't uncommon to the ancient Hebrews. You know, we believe that Moses at least wrote the first, I believe it is like 11 chapters of Genesis, 10 chapters, I can't remember. But we at least believe that he wrote that part of Genesis. So you're, he's 
probably writing this down to a group of people or in context to a group of people that just came from Egypt. So they're very familiar with these the Egyptian deities that are serpent-like, right? Yeah. It's just amazing what happens it, it, because these cultures all around them already had established ideas of, of these serpent false gods. It's just amazing what happens when you try to put this in context of what the ancient Hebrews would have known at that time. Yeah, it's kind of like when we talk about the letters of Paul in the New Testament and how you you can't remove them from the context of who they were written to. And yet we have this thing that we do with the book of Genesis where we, I very seldom hear people talk about the book of Genesis and then talk about the Hebrews in the wilderness that it was written to or whoever it was written to understanding things that it said the way that we do the new Testament. Right. And, and, you know, therein lies the issue. I mean, like I told Larry before we started recording, I, I told him, I was like, I could go forever on this because if I really wanted to, I could break down the the theology behind Lucifer and, you know, the gemstones that were on his breastplate and um, the holy mountain of God and, you know, him getting him, him deciding to walk away from God and rebel. Like there's a whole theology in behind Genesis chapter three that bleeds into this. Maybe we'll have to bring it back for October. <laughs> if not sooner. <laughs> hey, that was a good month. I'm just yeah. saying. Like, but Genesis chapter three now. So now we're going to kind of move now that we've laid the groundwork for the serpent. Let's move to the temptation, right? Yeah. Genesis chapter three, verse two says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. First of all, God told Adam, you can't eat of it. That means that Adam said, to Eve, don't touch it. So he put up a boundary for Eve. Uh, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, you know, most people, when you think of this, like, would you, if you're reading this, would you think that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing? It's so weird. Well, and yeah, that's always one of the things that I thought is like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Wait, isn't knowing good and evil is good. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, like knowing good and evil is good, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I think of this, like looking at my daughters and stuff, I'm just like, man, sometimes I wish I could be that innocent again. Like, but you know, I don't think the kind of innocence that they have, I necessarily ever had. But let's you know? work off your little, your, your little example there. Right. So, and I have, I have a child too. So um, th- you want your daughters to be knowledgeable, right? Yeah. But you want them to acquire that knowledge through the right process. Yes. So does that make that knowledge that they don't know evil? 
Not necessarily. Not necessarily, but let's say it, it goes that let, let's think about porn, pornography for a second. It's be p- kids are being exposed earlier and earlier and earlier to those sexual images. And that's not the right process, is it? No. So does that make the knowledge of it bad? When it's in a good way, when it's in a health and not exactly porn is healthy, guys. We're not saying porn is healthy or good, but we're saying being exposed to sex in a healthy and good way is good. But being exposed in a negative way is bad. Exactly. So So what you're saying is, is theoretically speaking, and obviously when we're theoretically speaking, we're not talking about doctrine. God could have always intended to have them eat of that fruit in the right time. Theoretically. Or God was bringing them to the understanding of what they understood when they ate of the fruit in his own way. And he didn't want them to eat of that because he wanted to show it to them. Yep. Possibly. I mean, again, exactly. Theoretically, I, I, this is not some hard theology, guys. <laughs> but what I'm saying is there is a process by which we want our children to understand the world. Yeah. We don't want them exposed to you know, sexual images at the age of eight. Yeah. We we would rather them understand it within the confines of marriage and all that, you know? So that being, or we would rather be the ones to talk to them about it instead of them going this back door route. Right. So I kind of feel like that may be what's happening here. You know, I don't, it's not that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was Eve was bad. It's that I believe God, as he did in the beginnings, had order. He had, he wanted to create this construct of order. And, you know, his, the, the relationship with humanity and God, he wanted that. And, having going about that knowledge going through this back door compromised that process and that order right and that brings me to what i believe are the same elements involved here isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 how are you fallen from the heavens o day star son of dawn how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The same verbiage is used here. Like the most high is equal with like God. At the root of this is the overwhelming obsession with being like God. Lucifer sought to overthrow God and take the throne for himself. On earth, we see the same argument being played out entirely. And ultimately, it's about removing God from the, from the equation. And it's about tampering with 
and overthrowing the divine order that God had set in place. It's not that the tree was inherently bad. It's that God had set a divine order. God was communing with Adam and Eve. They were close enough that Adam could hear the voice of God walking through the garden and could apparently abide in the presence of God because they were hiding after they had ate the fruit. So the same thing that got Lucifer and a third of the angels kicked out of heaven was now also going to get Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. And that is, and what got him kicked out was disobedience and selfishness. But again, it isn't, it is not that the knowledge was bad. It's that Lucifer, this seraphim, if you want to call it that, introduced sin and a just and holy God cannot allow sin to abide in his presence. And because of that, and I, I've heard it said this way, and this is something that is poetic in my opinion. Um, maybe, uh, maybe poetic is the wrong word. God loved man so much, but Lucifer introduced what God hated. What God hated was now in man, and yep. that is sin, disobedience, selfishness. And as we said, you know, God said, for in the day that you touch, for the, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Lucifer says, you won't die. And, you know, we talked about how last, last week we talked about how the tree of life was not forbidden from Adam and Eve. We talked about that, you know, that the source of their life was coming from God's grace, allowing them to eat of that tree, possibly. It was because it obviously was not in man in his biology to live forever. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was one of the things I was thinking when he talked about, you know, the knowledge of good and evil and stuff, it's like, they still had evil. Evil was eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. Like good and evil still existed in the garden. Even if they didn't understand it. They were just opened up by eating that fruit to the good and evil that existed everywhere else that everyone else was dealing with or everyone else will deal with, you know, and that's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons this story is so it's so looked at and central and, you know, an aspect of it that comes from here is, you know, Satan said, you will not die. Right. Yeah. They didn't die. <laughs> Well, yeah. Like, like they didn't die. I mean, so like, and it's interesting to me how we reconcile this because there's a lot of theories about it, right? You know, there's people who say that it was a spiritual death, right? They died the spiritual death then, but people who are, the answer to that is like, well, that's not really honest, is it? I mean, he said, you're going to die. And then they died some spiritual death that isn't really death. Right. You know, well, like it, it's not really using the word the way that it means. But it, it also goes back again, like we said last week, the tree of life was freely given to Adam and Eve. Yes. 
Yeah, which is the other way that they die is that they the they died that day, but it wasn't a direct death. It was just the countdown of death. Right. Right. But the final, the third big theory that people have is that that word in that day, it, it, it's interesting. It, it, and again, it's, it's the same word used for day in Genesis one. Right. It's the same word used all over the place, but here's the thing. If I say, if you do this in that day, this will happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that the moment you do it, it's magically going to get you and it's going to happen immediately. It just means that as a result of what you did, it's definitely going to happen. Well, and this is where understanding Hebrew comes in handy because certain words, when they're coupled with another Hebrew letter, changes the entire meaning. Yes. And so what the thought is, is that that day actually just means for certain it's, it's an idiom, right? Yeah. You know, it's in that day means it's definitely going to happen because you did it. So you eat that fruit, then you are definitely going to die. It doesn't mean that you eat the fruit. The moment, the moment you take a bite of that fruit, I'm going to smite you on the spot. That's not what God was saying. And, and again, we, we take it, we almost take it too literally. Like God was saying that he was going to smite them on the spot. Right. But that really wasn't what God was saying. And it's pretty clear that wasn't what God was saying in the reaction. And, and that's my favorite part of this verse. Like I, I, I love this story. And I don't love this story because, you know, talking snakes are cool. Although talking snakes can be pretty cool. I would like a talking snake. It would be cool. But I like this story because I think more than anything else, it shows the love of God. Because, you know, we talk about how like Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate example of God's love. Right. Right. And it is because God is speaking to us in our terms in a way that is ultimate to us. But here I see something that makes me think that, you know, God loves us so much. He'd almost go against his own self. Right. And, and it's, it's because of the way God reacts. So Adam and Eve eat that fruit and it's great. Right. Or it's not great. It's bad. It's horrible. Right. And, and things are going, they think it's great. They're like, Oh, we're naked. And they get some clothes, get some leaves. And all of a sudden they can. sew. I mean, it's like the matrix we can sew, right? And and so they make themselves some aprons out of some leaves and they hear God coming. Okay, here's the thing. I know hearing God coming was probably a regular thing, but God's everywhere. He was already there. Yeah, he probably already knew. Like he already knew and he comes up and God, I mean, just think of this, the God of all creation, the God that knows everything, the God that spoke everything into existence, the God that is all powerful, the God that is all everywhere of every time, all at the same time. Oh, oh, and by the way, the same God that handcrafted you. That hand, yeah. He walks up and he's like, uh, what where you are doing? you guys? I don't know where you are. Where might you be? Huh? 
Adam and Eve, where are you? What's funny, it wasn't like you even had to really look. <laughs> you didn't have to look. Like, this is like me walking into my kid's room and they're hiding under a blanket giggling. Yeah. And I'm like, I wonder where you are. Like, it's literally the same thing. Like, God God isn't asking, where are you? Because he actually wants to know where they are. He's asking, where are you? Because God, in his love for Adam and Eve and his love for man, is begging them to tell him what they did so yep. he can fix it. Yep. Okay? He wanted to fix it. And all they had to do was go, we ate of that tree and we didn't mean to, and we need your help. And I see nothing in this text and nothing in the nature of God and nothing in the rest of the 66 books of the Bible that make me think that if Adam and Eve would have cried out and they would have said, God, we, we messed up. We ate that fruit that we weren't supposed to. And now we don't know what to do, but we're ashamed that he wouldn't have fixed it on the spot. Yeah. Because the reality is, is that God didn't have to come to earth as a man and die on a cross for our sins to forgive us. Right. Because God made that rule. He made the rule that he then followed to speak to us in our language about how to be forgiven. He made the rules for us so that we'd understand. Because he couldn't tell Adam and Eve, all you have to do is tell me and I'll forgive you because then they're not really going to him. Right? Yeah. And so they respond and they say that they're like, I heard the sound and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he's just like, really, guys? How'd you know you were naked? So in verse 11, he's like, how did you know that you were naked? I don't understand how that ever could have happened. What did you do? Who told you? Did you eat of that tree you weren't supposed to? I mean, like, God does everything but say, all you have to do is tell me you did it and I can fix it. You know? And... And Adam's response is awful. He goes, instead of saying, yeah, we did it, help us. Or, yeah, we did it, we're sorry. He goes, you know what, God? It's that your woman. fault. That you woman you gave me. me. That woman, and she did it. It's your fault. But even there, even then, I mean, again, the God of all creation that's begging his creation to just admit that they did something wrong because he desperately doesn't want to punish them. He doesn't want them to die and he can fix it because he's all powerful. Your Here's the thing. The penalty of sin that's hanging over us is not the immovable rock that God couldn't move. He could move it anytime he wants. Okay. And so God, here's this. He gets accused of it being his own fault that his creation didn't listen to one simple rule. And instead of just right then and there smiting that dude, because I'd, I'd have smote him. I'd have smote him good. I might have smote him, resurrected him, and smote him again. You know, 
you, you know, this is. I mean, let's be real here. If I was God, I would abuse all that power that he has. Yeah. Because I'm I'm not good like him. But like this reminds me of, you know, when Peter denies Jesus three times. Yeah. Kim, like Jesus in that moment, you know, often we get the cinematic version where Jesus looked at Peter and Peter's like, oh, I know what I did now. But you can imagine when Jesus hears, because I mean, if Peter's following them, he's in proximity to hearing that that rooster crow. I want to say it, the Bible even says that Jesus like looked at him as he said it the third time or something like it. It implies that he could hear it. Yeah. So Jesus knew the moment that Peter did not in the third time. And I feel like this is the same way. Like in that moment, could you imagine Jesus' emotions that one of his best disciples just denied him? And he's being led away to his death and or to be interrogated, eventually put to death. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing going on here where God hears all this. He's being told it's your fault. You gave me that woman. And I can imagine like him turning away Adam and Eve was not his best moment. But uh, he's probably very disappointed, very hurt. If we can apply those things to God and the God sense of whatever whatever that is. <laughs> like yeah. I can imagine like those emotions that Jesus felt on that day probably brought back memories of Adam rejecting him. Which yeah. is crazy to think about because it wasn't like this is the first time Jesus has dealt with it. Literally, he's the God of the entire universe in a body. His Israelites have rejected him for thousands of years to the or a thousand years to this point. They're literally about to kill him. Literally about to kill him. Adam and Eve at creation reject him, blame him. And it, it really just brings me back to what Paul said. If by one man sin can enter the world, then by one man salvation could enter. Yeah. And you know what? I, you know what I think Jesus thought in that moment? Because I'd have been mad. Again, I'd have smote him. <laughs> yeah. But I also went to gotten on the cross. Yeah. But <laughs> Jesus, Jesus and his love, I don't, I don't know if he felt betrayed. I mean, I'm sure he did on some level, but I think the thing that Jesus probably felt most was heartbroken at yeah. knowing what Peter felt in that moment of realization. And the thought that he would never, he may never get to say sorry. Yeah, because Jesus knew what was coming. He bled sweat because he knew he was coming in the garden. Jesus was prepared. He, he literally prepared out in all of time and space for that moment. Okay. He was God. But Peter doesn't understand. And, and, and so, like, I don't even understand. I can't fathom how much preparation had gone into what was going to happen over the next 24 hours to Jesus. He knew he was ready. He didn't want to, but he was ready. But Peter, Peter knew who he was. You know, Adam and Eve knew what was in front of them. They knew, and they messed up. 
and God is just there. And he is so, he loves them so much that he's so desperate. And, and, and I think one of the things that clarified this for me so much is having kids because I can't tell you how many times that I'm, I'm talking to my kids and they do something wrong. And, and you're going to learn this a lot more as they get a little older because the first year was nice. It was all fun and games and lack of sleep. But the emotional stuff starts coming and, and it, it wrecks you when you have to discipline them. It wrecks you when you have to tell them they're wrong and all of a sudden they put the cute face on and they just want to give dad kisses and you have to discipline them. And I'm not, I'm not saying like necessarily like spank them or whatever. I mean, I, I have spanked my kids, but that's not just what I'm talking about. I mean, like they get wrecked by getting put on timeout or going to their room or losing a toy. Like it, it is the worst thing. Okay. And the thing is, is this punishment to Adam and Eve, it's so much more final. It's so much bigger. God sent them out of that garden dead. And he, he asked them again and again, he turns to Eve after Adam accuses him of it being his fault and he goes, what did you do? And Eve is like, well, the serpent did it. It lied to me. Their fault. And it's just like, God just run. He, he can't do it anymore. He can't. There's nothing left for him to do to try to fix it. Except to give them exactly what they deserved. But he didn't want to. Nothing about God that I've seen in the Bible, that I've experienced in knowing him, that nothing tells me that God wanted to do this. Nothing as a parent tells me that God was looking at Adam and Eve excited about what he was about to do. I mean, the one thing that calls out to me is where God and Moses argue over who the Israelites people are. God says they're your people. Bezos says, no, they're your people. Yeah. And that, that's the one thing that sticks out to me that, that this is a recurring theme where humanity has rejected God. And God gets so angry with the Israelites at one point that he's like, those are your people, Moses. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to kill them. And Moses is like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You kill them, and what is all this for? Who is here to raise up your name and glorify you, right? And it's in that moment that God realizes, okay, I won't kill them, but I am going to punish them. It's the it's a recurring theme throughout the Bible where God feels this need with disobedience to punish it, to, to get rid of it. But then he remembers, okay, Adam passed the buck. Eve passed the buck. The serpent didn't really have anywhere to go because he, he could have been an angel. He could have, it could have been an actual serpent for all I know. He didn't really have anywhere else to go. So, God's just like, okay, you're going to eat dust. You're going to experience pain in childbirth and the ground. You're going to work for everything you get now. Yeah. And that's the punishment that God sends them away out of the garden. 
he puts a an angel uh, i believe it's a cherubim actually i can't remember exactly with a flaming sword in their hand going all directions basically and that to me is just god saying look i created this paradise where we could commune together eternally if we wanted to and you passed the buck you passed your disobedience on over and over and over again and again jesus when he came to earth he said nope this is it it ends with me it ends here and that's what's amazing like from creation and we've been talking about we've been talking about all these different theological and philosophical ideas but the true moment of creation is genesis chapter 3 where we see man do what man does best and we see god do god do what he had to do but then yeah. john would record nothing was made without him through him, everything was made. And it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John John goes through this whole process of uh, in John chapter 1 of explaining, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning, uh, you know, all that, only to get to this point where He came to his own, and his own received him not. He talks about the light. He says that light was the life of the life of men. He talks about all of these different things in John chapter one that ultimately lead you to the main point of Jesus, getting you to know the second Adam that would eventually turned the foundations of the world upside down. We base our entire chronology of time on his birth. Like his birth is one of, if not the most singular important event in human history. And it's all because of creation. What happened at creation? And yeah, exactly. I I just, I read this and I see that God loves us, you know, like God loves us and he just wants us to know him. He wants us to tell him. He wants us to talk to him, you know? Yep. And, and that just, it's amazing to me that, that, you know, the Bible says greater love is no, has knows no man than this, than a man lay down for his life for a friend. And, I'm glad it says greater love. No, you know, has no man than this. Like no man has greater love than this, but you know, what is greater love than that being the God of all creation and looking at your creation and then watching it reject you and it reject you and reject you and reject you and reject you and reject you. And you still are just reaching out and showing love yep. to the creation. 
God's love is beyond our understanding and our under, our scope of measuring and anything else we could ever do. God's love is beyond all of that. And at, at, at most, he has done everything that he possibly can to explain it to us in terms that we know. And that pales in comparison to the reality of how much God loves each and every one of us. Every person hearing this, every person that doesn't hear this, every person that has ever existed, God loves them more than they could ever possibly understand. Yep. You know, I think it's a good spot to end it. Um, We obviously, we we have a few more things that we're going to cover with creation. Um, We're going to go at least through the flood and the Tower of Babel. Uh, which is going to be awesome. But next week... It's some good stuff. But next week is good too because next week we talk about the Nephilim. Which may be controversial to some of you, but only if you are just not open to reading ancient Near Eastern culture and theology. So open up your mind and let's talk about these uh, these things. And just and, having and not listen to Darren Arnosky or whatever, because that was <laughs> a bad movie. But we'll get into that too. Yeah, let's talk about it. But anyway, yeah, we'll we'll look at all this uh, Nephilim stuff, and yeah, that's it's going to be a wild ride next week. Uh, I could do probably three episodes on this, so I'm pretty excited. Uh, but we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>